0: Good morning Sycamore View. It's great to be with you. It's one of my favorite Sundays of the year. A chance to honor and give uh, to some wonderful efforts and organizations. I have a, a blessing of being able to partner in just with my own life with all six of these efforts. Two of them born right here out of our church. Every Thursday I get to see or hear. The work that is done out of our food pantry and all the ministries that are born out of that, through Kim Chapman and Carla Ward and others who serve there, and so thankful for how that blesses numerous families every week here in our church, as well as our Handprints Ministry that provides wraparound care for those going through adoption, and the recently the last few years pr- provides a lot of care for those in the foster system. And I love the passion and effort put into that for all four of the nonprofits that we support for Hope Works and and Soma, the Campus Ministry. U of M and Harding School of Theology. And I've been blessed to be a board member now at Agape for almost nine years. So thankful for these. And what we just gave to is going to go to bless thousands of people. And I'm thankful for that. I just want to ask for those who are employed by one of these four nonprofits or on the board of one of them, will you just raise your hand where you are just to acknowledge you and celebrate you today? Yeah, we thank God for you. Thank you. So it's a Sunday after Easter and it's a Sunday I try to keep with whatever sermon series I was just doing. So I don't start a new series the Sunday after because a lot of times we can celebrate the resurrected Jesus and then like forget how to live out the story of the resurrected Jesus. So if you want to be opening your Bibles to Mark chapter 16, that's where we're going to be today. If you're like me, there have been times in my life and there have been times in your life when you have lost your way. And uh, I'm not even talking about like like the heaven and hell being lost. I'm just talking about losing your way as in events have happened in life where you know how you walk into the future with God. is not going to be like how you've walked in the past with God. Not necessarily because God has changed, but because circumstances and relationships in your life have changed. So you've been through either a job transition or a life transition or divorce or bankruptcy or there's been a death in your family. There's been a deep form of grief and how you walk into the future is not going to be like what it was like in the past. And you can be confused. Sometimes it's hard to discern the direction of God, the purpose of God for your life. So there are times where we have lost our way. There was an officer in a a town in northern Britain, Officer O'Hanley, and he was working a late night shift, a police officer working a late night night shift, and he was working in his town, and and late into the night, he's walking down a street, and he came upon a child in the dark who was sitting on steps, and this child was crying, and the child said he was lost. So the officer did what many of us would do in a moment like that. He started naming like different streets, like where do you live? What's your address? And The kid didn't know his address. So the officer starts naming street after street, like do these sound familiar? It's like what we would do, like do, do you live close to Summer Avenue or do you live close to Stage or I-40 or in Memphis is like some of the roads have like seven names on the same road over 20 miles, so you just start naming all of them. And it wasn't working. The kid, nothing sounded familiar. So, so then he started thinking about restaurants and hotels. And it was what we would do. Like for me, if I was lost, I'd be like, can you just take me to a fried chicken? I can find my way home from there. Is there a central barbecue nearby? Naming restaurants, hotels, ball fields, anything with familiar, nothing sounded familiar to this kid. So the officer pointed to the center of the town where in the center of this town was a church. And on top of the church was a cross that towered over all of the scenery there. And, and the officer said, Do you live anywhere close to that? And when the kid saw the cross, a smile came on his face. And he said, Sir, if you can take me there, I can find my way home from that point. And I love the story because, hey, if you can just get me to the cross, I know that when I get close to that cross, it can help. Everything everything will come in the this, this sight. I will know how to get home from there. And part of what I love about death, burial, and resurrection and the Easter story is when we can get close to the cross, because sometimes we can go too far away from the cross. When we're close to the cross, things in life can make a little bit more sense. So a couple of days after Jesus was crucified and died, you have the apostles who were in a house and it's locked. They have locked the doors inside of a house. And you have women who are roaming the area. Now, men would have been a greater threat, Women weren't as much as a threat, but you do sense that these men are in a room. They're locked and they're afraid. The women are roaming the area, and the women are, they're, they're curious. The women, and if you read the Gospel of John, what it says is where Jesus was buried was close to where he died. So I wonder what it was like just even on the ground where blood had been spilt from cross to the burial and the tomb. And here's how the story goes. If your Bibles are open, in Mark chapter 16, 5 through 7, it says this. As they entered, and they're talking about the women, as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Hang on just for a moment, all right? Because if you're reading in there, it doesn't say anything about an angel in Mark. It's a young man who's dressed in white. If this was you, it would freak you out, right? Right? And as the women see this, it says they're alarmed, they're astonished, they're afraid. Verse six is this person, this young man says, Don't be alarmed. You were looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified, he is risen, he's not here anymore. See or look the place where they laid him, but go and tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. I want you to look at that that slide that's on the screen right now or in your Bible, because there are two things here that I love that I think will impact, should impact your life no matter where we are. This young man gives these women something to believe, and right here he also gives them something to do. He's giving them something to believe about, hey, Jesus isn't here anymore. And that C, the word C, and, and it's probably not even the best word right there. Like this isn't a just, I kind of look over there. This is a, like, look over there. Like you, it's a command. Like he's shouting at them, like, Look. Right there, because these women also saw the body of Jesus placed inside the tomb. The Gospels tell you they witnessed this. They are watching his body go in. They watch the stone come over the tomb. These women witness all of that. And now the women come in. They witness that the stone has been removed and his body's not there. So this young man gives these women something to believe. Jesus isn't here anymore. He is alive. And this young man, this angel, gives the women something to do that you go and you tell the, the followers, you tell the apostles about what you have just seen. Now, this young man doesn't tell the women, hey, sit down and pull out your pen and your pad, and I'm going to give you a rundown to take some notes on what the last 36 to 72 hours have been like and what has really been going on. And I want you to memorize all this and take this to him. Instead, it's like, hey, I want you to look at the place where Jesus was laid and he's not there anymore. And now you go back and you tell the apostles what has happened right here. Today in this room, God is giving you something to believe, and God is giving you something to do. He's not just giving the church something to believe. He's also giving the church something to do. He's not just giving the church something to do. He's also giving the church something to believe. And what you believe is that the crucifixion wasn't the end of the story. And as we read about the resurrection, the resurrection isn't the end of the story either. That God has accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished in and through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But this isn't the end. The death of Jesus wasn't the end. Hard times you experience in your life are not the end. The resurrection of Jesus isn't the end. That we are still receiving from God things to believe, things to do. So, whenever I read the Bible and I come to the story of the resurrection of Jesus, the question that I often ask isn't just... How do we get saved? Or how are we drawn into this story? Though that's a great question to ask. It's also, what does the church do? What do saved people do? You have something to believe, something to do. A few years ago, there was a woman. And because of some struggles, health struggles in her life and some self-image struggles, she decided that she was going to make a commitment to run a marathon. So this woman went into a local fitness center to find out, like, what does she need to do to run a marathon? Now, I think there are like three groups of people, even in this room today, when it comes to running long distance or triathlons or things like this. There are those of you who have done these. There are those of you who sit there and think, I mean, maybe I would like to, you know, half marathon, maybe one day for a cause, I could do it. And then there are those of you who are like, no way, not going to happen. Not even if a relative's dying and we need to raise money for them, I'll give money, but I'm not doing one of those. How many of you have run a half marathon, full marathon triathlon? Show of hands. Amen. Praise God for you. All right. How many of you kind of think, you know, maybe it's something you would like to do one day, but you haven't done it yet? Any of you? And how many of you fall into the camp of this is never going to happen? Like, it's, it's not on the radar at all. It's not me. And some of you are like, I told, man, don't bring guests to church because a preacher's going to ask you to raise your hands about things. All right. This woman goes into a local, local fitness center. That day, she finds herself in a ninety-minute class with a charismatic personal trainer who's teaching her what it means to have a plan—a nutrition plan, a diet plan, an exercise plan. Because if you're a Crystal Lane or a person like Crystal Lane, you know that when it comes to running these long things, you've got to have a plan in place. You've got to take a time out on Taco Bell and Captain D's for a while while you train and while you run. You have got to have a plan. So she spent time and she was reading books and she would go to the local fitness center and she was receiving all this education, but it hit her six weeks in that there was a major problem, that she had a plan in place, but no one had invited her into the fitness room yet. So her mind was wrapping around the idea of what it would take for her to run a marathon, but her legs hadn't changed at all. There had been no practice in her life. And I think when it comes to a church, how often do we give people something to believe and try to strengthen the belief and root the belief and ground the belief, but we often don't teach people how to go and do. Uh, Aaron Nequist, in his book, the, uh, the Eternal Current, great book, he writes that inspiration without spiritual formation doesn't bring lasting change. And you can spend time Believing deeper about God and focusing on sound doctrine and theological convictions. And we come together on Sunday mornings and we want to talk about belief. And you can get in Bible study groups and Wednesday night Bible study groups and have your daily quiet time devotional with God, thinking about the Bible, studying the Bible, yet not do anything in the kingdom. And then even think in your life, I've got to do something. So then you give turkeys to the homeless around Thanksgiving and think that what you were doing is in alignment with who God is. But there's also a major challenge today living in the 21st century that you do have people and a younger generation who want to do things. They want to be about change, invest in justice, care for the poor, take care of the needy, come alongside of those who have had dignity stolen from them who have never had it, and give them something to believe in. And they want to do things, but they aren't taking the time to root themselves in a belief. So what ends up happening, and what people have, some people have said before, is what happens is when you only focus on belief, but you don't have a lot of actions going with it, you become inactive believers. And if you only focus on doing, yet you're not taking time to root your beliefs in something that matters, in Jesus and the power of the resurrection, then you become worn out activists. And neither is what God desires for his people. So what they give these women is something to believe and something to do. And this becomes the rhythm of the church. It becomes the theme of the rest of the book of Acts. As you have something to believe, you have something to do. In Mark 16, verse 8, what you read is this. That trembling and bewildered, the women went out and they fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, I don't think the fear is... Here is that they remain silent forever. Because if you read the gospel accounts, what happens is these women go and they start telling people. I think here it's an amazement and they are in awe of what God has done. Now, here's where I need you to stay with me just for a moment. Because Mark actually has two endings. There's a short ending and there's the long ending. And if you're here today and you want certainty and you're like, Come and tell me, what is the correct ending? I don't really know, and you may never find out. But I don't want to mess you up today. I don't want to. this would be too confusing. I don't want this to be a doctrinal like hang-up for you. I want to bless you today. In 16, verse 8, this, what I just read, is the short ending of the gospel of Mark. And most people believe this is the correct ending. This was the ending when Mark sat down and Mark wrote his gospel. This was the ending. Now, let me show you word for word in the Greek... If you were to translate this word for word, here's what it would say. And having gone out, they fled from the tomb, had seized for them trembling in amazement, and to none nothing they spoke, they were afraid for. And that's where it ends. It ends just kind of leaving a sentence hanging. Which may drive some of you nuts, and for others of you, even myself, I look at that and I'm like, that's kind of cool. It's like a literary move that he leaves it hanging because, hey, Jesus has accomplished something that has changed eternity, but it's up to the church to decide, what are you going to do with this? Now, if the short ending right there, if that's where Mark ends his gospel, guess what you don't have in the gospel of Mark when it comes to an end? You don't have an appearance of the resurrected Jesus. You have a tomb that's empty and women who know it. But there's no interaction with the resurrected Jesus. Nobody meets him on a road. Nobody's, nobody encounters Jesus around a dinner when he breaks bread. None of that It's just left hanging. So the question is, okay, so if that is the short ending and you were a first, an early Christian and you're reading the story maybe for the first time and you're hearing the gospel of Mark being read and it comes to this and the ending just leaves it hanging like that, a question may be, so who's going to go and tell the world about the good news of Jesus? And the answer is the church is going to go and tell the world about the good news of Jesus, not just the apostles and not just the women. But the church. And 2,000 years later, who's going to go and tell the world about the good news of Jesus? The answer is still and will always be the church has been empowered by God to go and tell the world about the good news of Jesus. Now, how we sometimes function in the church is we come together, we celebrate, we want to believe in something, but we pay the professionals to go and tell the world about the good news of Jesus. I've had people come to me before and they've said, Josh, why do you not end every sermon with kind of a plan of salvation? So then I first talk to people and I share with them how I want to end every sermon and, why, and how I try to end it. But then I usually ask that same person, I've done this multiple times, some of you, I've asked you, I said, when's the last time you brought someone to church who needed to hear the invitation that you would like for me to give? Because if, the first time, if you bring someone to church and the first time they hear about the good news of Jesus, what first needs to change is your understanding of how God has empowered you to be a witness in the world. That the quote-unquote professionals... According to Ephesians 4, we exist to empower the body, to equip the body, to prepare the body, to live every single Monday as if it matters for the kingdom. To live every Thursday afternoon as if it matters for eternity. To pray like eternity is on the line. To invest in people as if every single day and every encounter with people in the way we love neighbors, that it matters. So, the church here's this short ending of the gospel of Mark. And I think what they would think is the mission has been given to us and we carry this on to the world. That we've been given the good news of Jesus. And the good news of Jesus isn't just that Jesus saves you from hell. And it's not just that Jesus changes your future. It's that Jesus changes everything. Everything. N.T. Wright in his book, Surprise by Hope, one of my top three favorite books of all time, He says this, the question of what happens to me after death is not the major central framing question that centuries of theological tradition have supposed. The New Testament, true to its Old Testament roots, regularly insists that the major central framing question is that of God's purpose of rescue and recreation for the whole world, the entire cosmos. And the destiny of individual human beings must be understood within that context. And what I love about that is this, that it can be easy in the church... For us to make going to heaven and salvation like the priority and the number one, and then discipleship and service and compassion and justice and evangelism secondary. That the thing that matters is that our children and our people get into heaven and all this other stuff. If you choose to do some of it, fine. And if you don't, that's okay, because at least we have heaven. Early Christians would have never thought like this that they knew that they were invited into a story to surrender everything they had to God and try to come together as a body to flesh out what this means for every part of life. So, I like the short ending of Mark. But there's also a long ending of Mark. And let me try to share with you why this probably happened. Because back then, they lived in a time where you didn't have a computer or a laptop or you could type up a story. It probably took Mark days to write the 16 chapters of what we know as the Gospel of Mark. And there's not a way to scan this, to send it to some other place or to email it somewhere else. You had one copy of it. So he sends one copy to a region, to an area, where I'm sure it was being passed around to some churches. But then what would happen is scribes would say, hey, you know what, this is the gospel and God has inspired this and we need other people to read it. So then they would take whatever that document was and subscribe it let's just call it another sheet of paper. And they would transcribe it word for word onto another sheet of paper or document so we could go to bless other churches in other regions. So you have scribes who are doing this. And there's a chance they got to the end of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 16, verse 8. And then they're thinking, man, we're writing because we need other people over here to hear what this has to say. But man, Mark really leaves this hanging. It's like the credits are rolling and then the credits need to go off. And we need to put a better ending on here, right? So they come up with an ending that they're not just like grabbing something. These are convictions. These are things that were written in other Gospels. And they're like, let's piece together and let's throw another few of these stories on to make a different ending. So the ending that the long ending has, it begins, and there's kind of a rhythm to it. Look at this. In verse 9 through 11, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons and she went and told those who had, been on, uh, who had been with him who were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Think about that. She comes in and she's not like, hey, I think something may have happened. She comes in. and She's like, I've seen the tomb. He's not there. He's alive. And their response is, mm, you're kind of out of your mind. Like, we don't believe you. So then the next story, which is probably the story of the walk to Emmaus that we have in the Gospel of Luke. And verse 12 is, afterward, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. The apostles have two different witnesses of two different accounts of Jesus being alive. And they're like, man, we we aren't sure if if that happened either. So then Jesus does this in verse 14. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He interrupts their meal. And he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had died. But it's not like Jesus comes in just to chastise him and beat them down. Because the very next verse what you read is Jesus is commissioning them. And Jesus said to them, go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Jesus is empowering and equipping the people who had just betrayed him and denied him days before. And he says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Is this commission. You have something to do. There's a belief. And there's something to do. You take this into the world. And then here's verse 17. And this has thrown some people for a loop. So follow me here, okay? Verse 17 is, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. All of these things that were just mentioned you see happen in the book of Acts. People are bitten by snakes and they live. They drink poison, they live. They're speaking in tongues, different languages. There are things happening. There's tangible demonstrations of the power of God. Now, it doesn't seem like the early church got hung up on these two verses. Because for them, the focus wasn't on the signs. The focus was on Jesus and trusting the gospel and the good news to people. The mission of Jesus was the goal. And the focus is on the fact that those who choose, who choose even today, to carry out the good news of Jesus anywhere you go, that you will find faithfulness confirmed in very tangible and practical ways in your own life now as well. And what it lets us know is that the power of prisons, and the power of death, and the power of poison, and the power of evil will not and cannot extinguish the good news of Jesus from advancing in the world even today. Amen? So in verse 19 and 20 of the long ending, it ends like this. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. And then the disciples went out and they preached everywhere and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So notice that Jesus doesn't ascend into the heavens and say, hey, I'm gonna leave you the Bible to study. As great as the Bible has been. What Jesus does is he ascends into the heavens and then the last verse is he worked with them. So he didn't ascend, as an escape plan. He ascended and continued to work with the church. So sometimes we think about the image of a baton being handed off, which is if I'm ever at a track and field race or I'm watching the Olympics, I love these events. I love the the sprint relay. I love uh, swim races where it's the relay and they're swimming down and back and then they're tagging the wall and someone else is jumping in. I love these kind of races. But the idea here is not that Jesus is handing off a baton and having the church run the race. It's that Jesus is handing off something and then Jesus is still running right there alongside of us. It's not that we are trying to cheer on God to go out into the world and save people. It's that God is empowering and cheering on the church to go out and live out the mission of Jesus everywhere we go. Everywhere we go. Which N.T. Wright says this in Surprised by Hope. What you do in the present by painting preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. That these activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. Instead, they are part of what we call building for God's kingdom. So Mercedes-Benz, a while back, some of you may remember this commercial. They had filed a, they came up with this state-of-the-art safety feature for vehicles. A state-of-the-art safety feature that would save lives. And they refused to put a patent on it. Meaning that any other dealership or ownership could create the same device and Mercedes-Benz could not sue them. They refused to put a patent on it. Now, it was a move on their part of saying, hey, we have a device and we want other people to have it. And I'm sure on their part they're thinking, this will let other people know how much they can trust us. But in one commercial, what the spokesman for Mercedes-Benz said is, that's because some things in life are too important not to share. Which should be the mission of the church. Every day of our lives. What we have been given. It's too important not to share. So, I want to ask this morning for our elders and prayer leaders to go to the places where you are. And I want to ask you to take seriously what it means for you to go home and carry on this mission, what you've heard me talk about today. What does this look like in your lives? How does it change how you engage your tomorrow? Whether it's in your family, your workplace, as we go about our day, that we're extending compassion, loving the unlovable. Praying bold prayers to see what God will do. If there's a prayer we can pray for you or with you, you see people surrounding this room who are here to pray over you, to bless you, and whatever it is we can, uh, however we can, whatever we can be for you. Let's stand together and let's sing a song.